Since hearing of the sincere conversion of the Colossians unto Christ, Paul and Timothy had not ceased to pray for them regularly that the Colossians might be filled with an exhaustive spiritual knowledge of the divine will. (coughs) This filling would in turn lead to a walk of life honoring to the gospel and pleasing to the Lord. And this walk of life would especially consist in four things. First of all, there was a general holiness. Secondly, an ever-increasing knowledge of God Himself and intimacy of relationship with Him. Thirdly, a joyful constancy and steadfastness under every tribulation, patiently waiting for the promises and putting away wrathfulness. And fourthly, thankfulness to the Father. And we've looked at all of those things in the past weeks. All of those things beginning in verse 9 of chapter 1 up to the beginning of verse 12, or the first phrase of verse 12. And last week we examined specifically this thankfulness that uh, was characteristic of a walk that was honoring and pleasing to the Lord and that was to be secured by being filled with a knowledge of the divine will. We looked at the importance of thankfulness as it is set forth in the scriptures, uh, that it is necessary or obligatory, that it is the way of living in Christ, that it is part of a spirit-filled life, that it is the right use of the tongue, that it is meant to replace anxiety and is the way to divine contentment, that it is universal in extent and abundant in intensity. Unthankfulness, we learned, is sin and is the abandonment of true worship and leads to further sin and judicial hardening and apostasy. And then also last week we saw that Paul in this place has especially in mind thankfulness about a certain thing. Uh, The thankfulness he has in mind that is honoring part of a God-honoring walk and secured by the knowledge of the divine will, is thankfulness for what God has graciously done in and for His people with regard to their redemption. And this He considers under the words, who has made us fit for the share of the inheritance of the saints in the light. That is, He has taken the Colossians and His other elect who were not fit for this inheritance, who were not ready or appropriate recipients or heirs to this inheritance, and he has made them fit for it. He's done something to them or in them or for them or all of the above to remedy whatever deficiency was present in them in order to make them suitable heirs of this inheritance. And the inheritance itself is described under Old Testament imagery. We considered how it was that God, in calling his people Israel, promised them a physical land, chose a people who were nothing, formed them, delivered them from bondage, 
led them into this promised land which had been prepared beforehand for them. And we saw that this was identical, typically, of what God has done for the true Israel, the, the true seed of Abraham, those who are in Christ. God promises them a <coughs> heavenly inheritance. He chooses a people and forms them who were nothing. He delivers them from their bondage to spiritual Egypt, leads them by His presence in the Holy Spirit into this land, which is prepared beforehand for them by Christ, who promises that as He ascends into heaven, He goes to prepare a place for them. This inheritance is in the light. And we saw how that God is light, Christ is light, Heaven is light. It is the heavenly inheritance, pure and holy and glorious, revealing and manifesting and shining forth God's perfections. And it is the inheritance of the saints in the light, only of the saints, for only the saints are the children of light. <clears throat> now today, we turn to the second regard in which thanksgiving is particularly made, which is really just a continuation of the first, not a separate one. It continues the analogy of the inheritance by focusing on the aspect of deliverance from a foreign, hostile power. And I think also it begins to explain some of what is behind the concept of being fitted for this inheritance. How we know that there is a God-honoring walk to give thanks to the Father who, who makes His people fit to be for their share of the inheritance of the saints in the light. But what especially does He do to fit them for this inheritance? What must be done to them? And it centers in verse 13, who has delivered us from the power or the authority of darkness and has translated, transferred, or removed us unto the kingdom of the Son of His love. Two things then. Uh, he takes them from one place, if you will, delivers them from one authority, one power, and uh, removes them to another place uh, as colonists, if you will, into another kingdom with another authority. The first part of God's work in fitting His people for the heavenly inheritance and for which the Colossians especially were to thank God is their deliverance from bondage. Deliverance from bondage. Just as God in a type, delivered his physical people, national Israel, from bondage and servitude in Egypt. And remember that Egypt in Scripture is always representative of the kingdom which opposes God, of a wicked, evil, dark, uh, 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 sinful, uh, idolatrous kingdom. So that uh, when... To, 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 to desire to return to Egypt, to lean upon Egypt, to seek uh, help from Egypt, 
is to turn away from God to wickedness. Just as God delivered his people, Israel, from bondage in Egypt, so God must deliver his true Israel from a spiritual bondage in a spiritual Egypt, who delivered us out of the power or authority of darkness. The state of man by nature since the fall and the condition of all the unregenerate of the world is that they are in darkness. Mankind is in darkness. Now this is meant uh, two ways in the scripture. It refers first of all to ignorance, to blindness. Just as a blind man is in literal darkness, so the ignorant man is in spiritual darkness. He does not have the eyes with which to see the truth. And so he wanders about as if he were in a mist, or a cloud, or a fog. For an example of this usage and how it ties in with the work of the Lord Jesus, consider first of all Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. Now this is about the Jews. Behold, thou art called a Jew... And you rest in the law, and you make your boast of God, and you know his will, and you approve the things that are more excellent being instructed out of the law. Do you see the idea here? They know the truth. And you are confident that you yourself are a guide of the blind, a light to them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. So the very concept of being a light to those which are in darkness, those which are in darkness are the same as those that are, in, are blind, which are the same as those that are foolish, or are babes, or who do not know the law. So to be a light, he says, is to know the law to them which are in darkness, which are those ignorant of the law. Now, bear that in mind as we turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 76 through 79. And thou, child, speaking of Jesus, this is Zacharias, filled with the Holy Ghost, prophesying, and thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go, I'm sorry, um, this is of, uh, not of, of uh, Jesus, John the Baptist. And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in the spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. But here, uh, verse 79, to give light to them that sit in darkness is put with giving knowledge of salvation unto the people, and guiding our feet into the way of peace. So, part of the darkness which men are under 
is ignorance of the truth, blindness of the law of God. But it also, this darkness in Scripture, refers to an ethical darkness, to wickedness. There are what are called the works of darkness, the works which characterize those who are in and of the darkness. For example, Romans chapter 13, verse 12. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. So the works of darkness are, in their essence, making provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Or also, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. So, darkness is ignorance, and darkness is ethical uh, wickedness and immorality. But these two things are closely connected in Scripture. As light is truth, it exposes and manifests the deeds of darkness and brings truth to bear on them, and rebukes them. And in Scripture, these two concepts of the nature of the darkness which men are under overlap, as we were reading in Ephesians 5, after having spoken of the works of darkness, he says, But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Truth comes to bear, manifests the wickedness of the works of darkness. Also, John, chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Truth, light, comes into the world. Everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So those who are in darkness, doing the works of darkness, in wickedness, will not stand to be enlightened by the truth, but will instead hate it and will not come to it. Also, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, And the light shines in darkness, and darkness comprehends it not. Even though the light shines, the darkness of ignorance cannot see it. Cannot comprehend it. First John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This then is the message which we've heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Also chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. A new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is past, or is passing away, and the true light now shines. He that saith he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no occasion of stumbling in him. 
But he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not where he goes because that darkness has blinded his eyes. So ignorance of the truth and the the darkness of the ignorance of the truth and the darkness of wickedness are intertwined in the scriptures and inseparable. Now, the second thing that we want to observe is not only that the condition of man is that he is in ethical and moral darkness, but also that this darkness is not just a condition which men are in. It is a power to which they are subject. It is an authority which rules them. Darkness is not merely a condition. It is a ruling power and an authority. It is a lord which they serve. It is called in our text, the Greek word is an exousia, which means a power or an authority. One with exousia has the authority to give commandments which must be obeyed. One with exousia has the power to execute whatever is within the sphere of his authority. Let me show you a few usages of this word to give you some idea of the power of darkness and the the concept of the authority which lies in one who has exousia. Mark chapter 11, verses 28 through 33. And they say unto him, By what authority do you do these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will ask of you one question and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Speaking here of the uh, um, the power to uh, to forgive sins and to work miracles, he has an authority given to him. Also, Mark chapter thirteen, verse thirty-four: For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. And also John, chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. Then Pilate said unto him, Speakest not thou unto me? Don't you know that I have power to crucify you, and I have power to release you? And Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me, except it were given you from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto you has the greater sin. You see, the concept here is the, is the concept of authority over people, the authority to give commandments and to execute commandments. Uh, to give you some of the idea of the distinction between being in a condition and being under a power, uh, if, I, if, if, if you were uh, cleaning the table and I came and said, let me help you clean the table, and someone who comes in sees me cleaning the table, well, they can discern that I'm in the condition of cleaning the table. But I can stop when I want to. I can leave if I want to. I happen to be cleaning the table. Now, if a person came in and saw that I was chained to the table and that I had a sponge glued to my hand and that under pain of punishment again and again and again I had to clean the table then I would be under power or authority. 
Men are not in darkness merely as a condition, but as those under a power. They are the servants of darkness. They are locked in bondage to their master. They cannot escape the ignorance of darkness because it is a veil on them which they do not have the liberty to loose. They cannot escape the wickedness of darkness because it is a master that compels them always to do and live in the deeds of darkness. It is not a relationship which they are at personal liberty to sever. And of course the condition is one step worse. They would not sever this relationship if they could because they are also the willing slaves of this power. John, again, chapter 3, 19, they love this condition because they themselves have evil hearts. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Their deeds were evil. So, darkness is a condition of, of, of ignorance uh, and moral wickedness which men are in. It is a power which they are subject to as the willing but unescapable servants. And then, not surprisingly, this authority of darkness has behind it not merely some nebulous concept of power, but a person or a being, Satan and his minions. Acts chapter uh, 26, verse 18, which connects this power with Satan himself. It says, uh, this is, this is uh, Paul's relation of his uh, conversion. Christ is speaking to him, saying that uh, he's appointed him to be a witness uh, he's going to send them to the Gentiles in order to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan, the exousia of Satan, unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by the faith that is in me. So to be turned from darkness to light is all one with being turned from the power of Satan to God. And this is a verse we'll return to. Notice that the purpose of salvation is here set forth as that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance. And you will notice in Colossians as we continue uh, that he speaks of being made partaker of the inheritance in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Closely connected items. Also, returning to topic, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. And also, Luke chapter 22 Verse 53, when I was daily with you in the temple, Christ says, you stretched forth your no hands against me, but this is your hour 
and the power of darkness. See, Jesus is just being taken. He's being taken away to be tried and crucified. He says, when I was in the temple daily, you didn't touch me. But now it's your hour and the power of darkness. This is the hour when the authority of darkness gains sway to execute what it desires to do. Even though that, of course, is all under the superintending providence of God. So it is Satan then who within the power and scope allowed to him by God rules these children of darkness of whom he is called their father, the devil. Now, having looked at those things, I think that it is quite obvious why being in this condition and under this power would be entirely inconsistent with being an heir to the inheritance of the saints in the light. What greater polarization into extremes could be imagined what uh, what greater opposite no willing slave of Satan who is living in servitude to darkness who is blind and ignorant working every evil deed no such person would be a suitable in, to, to inher- heir of the inheritance of the saints in the light neither in fact would they even desire such a thing or be pleased in it or by it They obviously must be fitted for it. And this begins with their deliverance, who delivered us from the power of darkness. The use of this word also implies the powerlessness of the one delivered to save himself and the absolute necessity of outside intervention. And of course, in this case, such intervention could only come from God because only he would have the authority to overcome and contravene the power and authority of darkness. So that as the first part of fitting men for the heavenly inheritance, for which the giving of thanks is made as a part of a God-honoring walk, God delivers men from bondage, from servitude, from the command of darkness, from both ignorance and wickedness. But this is not all. He then places them somewhere else. The text reads, And he removed us into or unto the kingdom of the Son of his love. Now this word that I've translated removed is fascinating. Uh, It's used only four other times in the New Testament. Twice it is used to refer to someone who's being removed from office. Luke uh, chapter 16, verse 4. So one of the parables of the, uh, I believe it's the unjust steward, uh, or of the, uh, oh, this is the, this is the steward who, uh, who, is, uh, who is in debt, and so he uh, calls all of his master's debtors and negates their debt and uh, uh, so forth. He says... Uh, He says, uh, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called them and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of your stewardship, for you may no longer be steward. The steward said within himself, What shall I do? My Lord takes away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg. I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do. When I am removed from the stewardship, that they may receive me into their houses. And so he goes and makes friends with his master's debtors by cutting their debts so that when he loses his job, 
he'll get to go to, they'll be his pals and he can go be with them and he won't be cast out on the street. He's going to be removed from his stewardship. Also, Acts uh, 13.22, speaking of Saul, uh, when he was, when he had removed him and raised up unto them David to be their king, you see, when Saul was removed from the office of king. It is once used of, uh, of an object, of removing an object as opposed to a person from office. 1 Corinthians 13.2 And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And then the other usage is in Acts 19.26, which speaks of removing people from their beliefs. Uh, moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and removed much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands, so that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised. See, many people had been removed from their beliefs. This idea of removal is central to the word. Uh, evidently, also, this was a word that was frequently used by the classical authors to describe being deported, a, a group of men being deported, for example, to form a colony. That was always happening. Uh, the Romans would take a, uh, or the Greeks would take a, a group of people and they would conquer some new land and they would take some group of people from uh, within their colony and would send them out. Uh, to, to colonize this new place, and, and this was the word that was used. And so perhaps there's some of that sense here. Uh, as Edie puts it, the Colossians had been lifted out of the realm of darkness, their original seat and habitation, and they had been carried into the kingdom of his son and colonized in it. They were not as immigrants in, emigrants in search of a home, nor as a company of dissatisfied exiles, but they were... Uh, they were uh, taken out of the one territory and settled in the other expressly by divine guidance. Uh, the first point to emphasize here is that these words deliver and remove indicate a total severing of their former estate. They are not partly in the dark and partly in the light. They are not partly serving God and partly serving Satan. There is a radical transformation here. If we are removed from here and taken to Siberia, then we are not in Texas. And so it is here. If you are removed from the authority of darkness and placed into the kingdom of Christ, you are no longer under the authority of darkness, doing the works of darkness, following the will of Satan. You are removed, you are delivered, rescued, transferred. Now, we said that the emphasis here was not only on where they were uh, delivered from, but to where they were removed. Having been delivered from one rule and authority, they do not now become kings over themselves, do they? Not in the least. They don't suddenly become their own lawgivers, they are transferred from an exousia to a basileia, from an authority to a kingdom. Uh, this word kingdom, uh, basileia or basileia in the Greek, 
The overwhelming, almost exclusive usage of this word is to refer to the dominion of God in Christ. A few times it refers to the kingdoms of the nations and a couple of times to Satan's kingdom. But primarily it refers to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. It is appropriate, this concept of kingdom, to the verb that is used, the removal. When men are removed from the authority of darkness uh, to become subjects and citizens, having a new lord and a new king. I want to emphasize a second point here. Uh, We already talked about how this concept uh, of of removal and deliverance uh, talks uh, talks about uh, the, the complete severing of the relationship. But this concept of the kingdom, I want to point out that this kingdom is not future. This kingdom that he's talking about here. He doesn't say you've been delivered from the power of darkness so that later on, When the eternal state comes, or the premillennial or postmillennial reign, you can be in the kingdom. He doesn't say that. He says, says, you've been delivered from the power of darkness and removed unto the kingdom. Now! They are now subjects of this kingdom. They are now citizens, now living in it. Too much of eschatology of both the pre- and postmillennial variety is to the detriment of this vital biblical truth. In, in fact, the premillennial uh, are fond of, den- especially dispensational premillennial, are fond of denying it altogether. Uh, we are not waiting for the commencement of the kingdom. The kingdom has arrived. Matthew, just one of many passages, this could be a whole series unto its own, Matthew chapter 12 then was brought unto him one possessed with the devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every house divided against itself shall not stand and if Satan cast out Satan he's divided against himself how then shall his kingdom stand and if by Beelzebub I cast out devils by whom do your children cast them out therefore they shall be your judges but if I cast out devils by the spirit of God which we know is true then the kingdom of God is come unto you It is true that the kingdom has not been established to its fullest, broadest extent, nor will it be until the commencement of the eternal reign. We pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But it has come in a fundamental way. Christ's spiritual reign uh, as King of Kings has been inaugurated. The kingdom of God has been preached. Men have entered into it and become citizens and servants of this Lord of Lords. And if we are to be saved, we too must enter into the kingdom. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is here. The kingdom of God suffers violence. Violent men take it by force, pressing in to the kingdom. Now, this kingdom is the kingdom of his son, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ruler. He is the king. Christ calls it my kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom. And as the king, he prescribes the laws of the kingdom. This is not a democracy. 
he establishes the requirements for citizenship in the kingdom. He also provides protection to the subjects of the kingdom, ensuring that they suffer no final harm from the enemies of the kingdom. He issues forth royal blessings upon his subjects. He is the king of the kingdom. But he is not set forth here merely as the son of God, who is king. He is called the son of his love. This is a beautiful, powerful language. He is the son beloved by God the Father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. He is the son who possesses the love of the Father, who, as one puts it, excites it in the divine heart. As the Father looks upon the Son, love pours forth boundless and unchanging affection. And it is not inappropriate that the Father's love to the Son is here mentioned in conjunction with the Son's, uh, 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 son's kingship over the kingdom because it is the Father's love that prompts the Father to give the Son this kingdom. John chapter 3, verse 35 the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. So then in fitting men for this eternal inheritance, God delivers them from the bondage and servitude of the authority of Satan in darkness. He opens their eyes. He, re he renews their hearts and wills. He removes them to a new kingdom, one in which they become the willing subjects of the Lord Jesus, the son of his love, whom he is highly exalted to be the king of kings. And as citizens of this new kingdom, they serve the king and await the end of their service, which is the blessing and reward of the eternal inheritance. And this is part of how they are fitted. And for this, they give thanks to God.